The term self-compassion <clears throat> might sound a little nonsensical at first. Compassion is about a relationship between people, feeling with or suffering with, that's what it means. And um, <clears throat> so it's between us and someone else. How can it be internal? And then when I encountered the term over and over again and from um, some really interesting researchers who've done um, quite a lot of uh, work on discovering what self-compassion is and what it does in our psyches. It reminded me that we do have a relationship with ourselves. Voices within us comment on other aspects of ourselves. We have past selves and a present self. And the qualities of those relationships, the things that we say to each other, these different selves within ourselves, have an enormous effect on our happiness, on our mental health, to some extent on our physical health, on our success at our chosen tasks. Whether or not we speak to other aspects of ourselves with compassion has an enormous impact on how we are day to day with ourselves and with other people. The uh, researcher who's done so much work on this with many team members, Kristen Neff, as far as I know, uh, as far as Robert Neff knows, there's no relation. Um, she draws on a philosophical system that has given a tremendous thought to compassion, Buddhism. If it seems strange for a psychological uh, researcher to be drawing on a religious tradition, well, just listen on. Because she, uh, Buddhism has given so much thought to different aspects of compassion that as she applies them, to, uh, to individual conversation within ourselves, self-compassion, and studies whether they work. She finds that there's a tremendous amount of empirical support for exactly what Buddhists have been saying for many centuries. So Neff says, think about self-compassion as having three aspects. One is self-kindness versus self-judgment meeting whatever we've done or say something we regret or we're feeling foolish about or something with kindness, the way we might meet another person's, excuse me, um, mistakes, the person we cared about with kindness as opposed to judgment, as opposed to saying, you know, you did badly. Um, second is there's a sense of common humanity. You're human. Oh, you messed up, you're feeling bad about that. You're human, it's what human beings do. And the opposite of that is a sense of isolation, of being, oh, it's just, it's just me, I'm the only person who feels like this or does things that are so stupid, mean, whatever it is we're beating ourselves up about. Self-kindness instead of self-judgment, a sense of common humanity instead of isolation, and finally, mindfulness. Mindfulness, of, again, errors, the things that are troubling us in some way, as opposed to, mindfulness has two opposites, 
either over-identification with them or ignoring them. We don't want to ignore them. We want to be aware of the things that we don't like or are upset about about ourselves. Um, that's very important for growth, obviously. But we also don't want to over-identify with them. We don't want to make them global or uh, that's how we always are. No, we just notice them at that moment. Oh, I did this instead of, you know, oh, I did something that I, that, that's, that's foolish instead of, oh, you're such an idiot, right? Over-identification. Imagine a friend coming to you after a failure, after a mistake, after they did a bad thing, or they're just nervous and scared about the future. They're in need of compassion. How would you respond? Many of us, and looking around at our own congregation, the kind people I see gathered here, I'll venture to say, most of us in this gathering are more compassionate to others than to ourselves. We wouldn't say to someone else who came to us in a bad moment, how could you do such a thing? That is so stupid. We wouldn't say, you're always doing this kind of thing. We wouldn't say, I don't, I don't know how I can help you. Right? Well, that's not how we would talk to a friend. But we talk to ourselves that way. Self-compassion means that when we're feeling that regret, fear, failure, we think of that self who's feeling that way as a friend who came for help. And we say, what do you need? How can I help you at this moment? We acknowledge. This is difficult right now. Just acknowledge it. Maybe we offer ourselves a cup of tea and some quiet time. We assure ourselves, you know, you're human. Maybe you messed up. Human beings do that. And we assure ourselves as we would assure a friend. You'll do better another time. Before I dig in more to the empirical evidence, I want to follow Dr. Neff's example and look at a story. Look at some of the teachings from a wisdom tradition. The story I want to tell is that of probably my favorite person in the Bible, my favorite character, and he is a character, Jonah. Jonah is one of the prophets. He's one of the minor prophets, <coughs> which doesn't mean he's unimportant, but just that these books, the books of these prophets are very short. Even among the minor prophets, though, Jonah is unusual. The book of Jonah is unusual. Most of the prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible are mostly prophecy. They're mostly, which is not usually about the future. Part of it is about that. But it's mostly about saying, if you don't do this, this is what will happen. And those tend to be moral teachings. If you do not take care of the, the widow, the orphan, the needy, the hungry in your midst, you will suffer. You will be punished by God or your enemies will invade. It's a moral teaching, excuse me, bracketed by just a little bit of information about the prophet. The prophet, here's the name of the prophet uh, at such and such a time and such and such a place, and here's what he said. And then the rest is this 
kind of sermon. Jonah is just the opposite. There's almost no sermonizing in it. There's one lovely prayer at the center. The rest is, it's like a short story. It's like the story of this person, this prophet, and what happened to him. One piece you probably know, maybe other parts are not so familiar to to you. So I'm going to tell the story. As I said, it's a short book. And it's significant, by the way, speaking of why Jonah is not a minor prophet, that the book of Jonah in its entirety is read in uh, the service of Yom Kippur, in the middle of the day of fasting, um, when a Jewish community is, is atoning and reflecting on what they did wrong. There is Jonah. And I think there is a teaching in different language, but a clear teaching in Jonah about the importance of self-compassion. So, the beginning of the book of Jonah. God says to Jonah, God says things to prophets, God says to Jonah, big city, Nineveh, the big capital, the biggest city in the world that you know, it's in real trouble. The people are terrible, and I'm going to punish them. I'm going to wipe out that city if they don't see the error of their ways and change it. I'll give them three days after you warn them, three days for them to repent and turn themselves around, and then I'll see if they've really done it. Now, bear with me here. I want to say that if you think of it in a sort of skeptical way, that voice of God for Jonah is like the voice of conscience. It's the voice that says, someone messed up, and here's what they need to do. And I want to say, although I know this sounds like a stretch, that that is a compassionate voice. Yeah, it's, it's wrapped up in this judgment of I'm going to wipe out this city and everything. But what that God is saying to Nineveh is you can fix this. You're not bad for all time. You messed up, right? It's, it's that mindfulness as opposed to over-identification. You messed up, here's how, but you don't have to be like that. You can change. And he sends Jonah to help them change. I'm not going to just wipe them out. I'm going to give them a warning and a chance to turn it around. Well, Jonah, for reasons that we can speculate about, I don't know, think about if you were suddenly called to go to London or Los Angeles or Hong Kong, one of the mighty cities of the world, and tell them, how they messed up and how they needed to fix things. Well, Jonah, in a similar situation, packs up his bags and heads in the opposite direction as fast as he can go. He goes to the port. He asks some sailors if he can be a passenger on their ship, and out they go to sea. And no sooner are they out in the open ocean that a terrible storm comes up. They have never seen anything like it. They do all the things that expert sailors know how to do to save themselves and keep their boat from going to the bottom of the sea, and they are out of ideas. Nothing is working. They are about to turn to the supernatural. They're drawing lots to decide, okay, who is going to go overboard to appease whatever god we seem to have angered? Just about then, their passenger, who's been asleep below, comes up, and Jonah sees what they're doing, and he says, no, 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 no. Don't throw anybody overboard. It's me. I caused this. Throw me overboard. They said, we can't do that. No, no, believe me. It's my fault. 
This is a moment for Jonah. He hasn't wanted to save the people of Nineveh so far. He's been a pretty surly prophet. He's been the anti-prophet. He hasn't wanted to help them. But here he's taking some responsibility for himself. That's a piece of self-compassion too. So he says, it was me. I'm the one who messed up. Throw me overboard. And they do. And immediately the sea calms. The boat sails on fine. Jonah sinks down into the water, down, 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 and you know what happens next. He's swallowed by, the text says, a big fish, a great fish. It's in the belly of the fish that Jonah utters this prayer. And his prayer is a voice of self-compassion. Again, it's directed to God and it's about God, but imagine that one says something like this to oneself, to one's conscience. Jonah says, I am in the depths, and when I reach out to you for help, I get help. You will save me. It's a voice of hope. It's a voice of possible change. Instead of saying, I deserve to be here and to be digested by this fish and forget it, this is the end. I messed up so terribly, he says, there's still hope for me. And there's still hope for him. The fish spits him out onto dry land. Well, Jonah, he only needs to hear this message once. He knows what to do. And this time he heads straight for Nineveh. He's not happy about it. He's grudging. He's angry at these people. And he doesn't think they're going to change. But he tells them what God said. And the people of this mighty city, when told by this complete stranger, you are cruel to the needy among you. You allow the poor to suffer and the widow and orphan to go uncared for. And God is angry at you and you need to change this. They do. They go into all the signs of mourning. From the king down to the lowliest member of the society, they take off their regular clothes and they put on flour sacks and they spread ashes in their hair and they say, we are sorry. We are sorry. We want to change. We have done wrong. We are human. We made bad mistakes and we want to change. And God says, They mean it. They're changing. The decree has been reversed. (coughs) There's a lovely little coda that I won't tell you. That can be the spoiler. Go look up the book of Jonah about what happens next. But the essential point is, if you'll pardon my language, Jonah's pissed. He's pissed. These people, they've done so many terrible things for so long. And he came and he risked his neck, risked being called a loony, and who knows what else, to tell them to change. And they're doing it. And he's angry. (laughs) He's really struggling with the compassion thing, Jonah. He doesn't have compassion for them, and he didn't have compassion for himself. And he's just really struggling. And God says to him, look at the compassion I'm having for you. 
Look at the way I've been taking care of you. Gives an example. And then he says, this is a great city, a huge city, full of people, and they're innocent beasts as well, and shouldn't I have compassion on them? Scene. That's it. That's where the story ends. We don't know what happens. We don't know what Jonah thinks. We don't know if he changes. The story is for us, for us to hear, maybe when we're beating ourselves up, that there's another way. Could we do like the people of Nineveh? Could we have that moment, that glimmer of awareness as Jonah did when he was in the whale? Can we hold on to that and offer ourselves compassion and the possibility of change? Self-compassion does appear to be a powerful path to change. It's not self-absorption. It's not narcissism. In fact, it tends to lead to the opposite of these things. Self-compassion isn't about evaluating ourselves at all. It's not about judging ourselves positively or negatively. It's not judgment. It's not positive, negative evaluation. It's about, it's about those three things. Kindness, recognizing that you're part of humanity and that that's a flawed and complex thing to be, and mindfulness of what we have actually done. Likewise, just like it's not about beating ourselves up, it's not about propping ourselves up with self-esteem. Self-esteem doesn't work the same way. So of all the many, many studies um, I could quote to you about, um, about self-compassion, I want to share one with you that, um, that took place not far from here at UC Berkeley. Students at UC Berkeley are smart, right? They know they're smart. Well, the researchers there um, gave the students, subjects in this psychological test, a really hard test. It was a vocabulary test, and you know, you know English vocabulary. You could be a fluent speaker your entire life, and there's a lot of words you have never heard of. And it was deliberately set up so that they would do badly, and they mostly did. And then, the researchers took the students who had done badly on this test and said, you know, you're going to have another opportunity to take this test. But they divided them into three groups. One, of course, is the control group. Nothing happened with the, that group. It was just scheduled to do the test again another time. The second group was given a self-esteem boost and, and coached in giving themselves messages of self-esteem. Hey, you're so smart. You got into Berkeley, you'll do fine, okay? You're a smart person. Boost, boost, boost. Pat yourself on the back, have some self-esteem. The third group was told messages and coached in messages of self-compassion. You're human. No one's perfect. This is difficult. It really stinks to take a test and do so badly. That's a, that's a hard experience. You'll do better another time. All three of these groups were given the opportunity to take the test again. And of the three, the ones who were coached in self-compassion did the most constructive thing. They studied longer than anyone else. That, not surprisingly, correlated with doing better on the test the next time. Evaluating themselves, even in a positive way, didn't have the same effect. 
What they needed was compassion. And this is helpful to remember when we're talking to other people and when we're talking to those parts of ourselves who could use some compassion. When we feel compassion towards someone, it's not about boosting them. It's not about liking them or approving of them or in any way deciding that they are worthy of praise. It's about recognizing that they're human, that we are human, and that what we need in times of stress, failure, self-doubt, our kindness, an understanding that we are human, and just mindful attention to the ways we did things badly, wrong, ways we regret that we could maybe change. Not surprisingly, the preliminary research suggests that this also makes us kinder to other people. When we are compassionate to ourselves, we are more compassionate with other people. So, if you need that as a reason to focus on yourself, if it seems too self-absorbed to take those moments when you're kind of beating yourself up and think instead, what do you need? How can I help? If it doesn't feel right to sing to ourselves, how could anyone ever tell you you're anything less than beautiful? How deeply you're connected to my soul. Your loving is a miracle. If it's hard for you to justify saying that to yourself, remember, it'll make you better at saying it to other people. Lots of research is telling us that. I got curious, being that this is November, on whether self-gratitude also helps us to develop self-compassion and its fruits. And Neff touches on this just a little bit. She says, rather than wandering around in problem-solving mode all day, thinking mainly of what you want to fix about yourself or your life, you can pause for a few minutes throughout the day to marvel at what's not broken. How about we do that with ourselves? Our bodies, thanking our bodies for what they're doing well, which most of the time is most of it. Even when you're sick. Hey, heart, thanks for beating. Hey, lungs, I'm so glad. Thank you, thank you. You're doing your job. We really notice the failures. How about a thank you to our immune systems, which keep us safe most of the time? They mostly don't let things through. Well, in the same way, we can thank our past selves. Thank you, past me, for doing that onerous task. Now I don't have to do it. Thank you, past me, for remembering to go grocery shopping so I'd be able to cook today right away, not have to do it now. Thanking ourselves for all that we've done so far and thanking ourselves for all we do well, all the ways that we aren't broken and we didn't make a mistake. Maybe that could turn us towards self-compassion. So as we're reminded to be thankful this month, let's start also with some gratitude toward ourselves. Thank you. Let me just notice the ways 
that you've helped me. Thank you, thank you. And now, on to making the world, along with ourselves, a little better. So may we do.